Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Boosting Your Financial IQ. I'm sitting here with Dan Shea. He's the Managing Director of Objective Capital Partners. Welcome, Dan. I'm glad that you're on the show. We have a lot to cover and we're going to be talking about M&A and specifically how to monetize your life's work. So I'm excited for this topic and Dan, welcome. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Steve. It's a, it's a massive topic. It's one that I've lived uh, for over 30 years now. And I'm excited to be here. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Yeah. So let's talk about, there's so many different angles that we're going to approach in this episode, but let's just jump in right away and tell me what types of businesses sell and what types of businesses don't sell. Because I think, you know, that that's important to distinguish because some people may begin with the end in mind, right? And if they're thinking that they're going to grow this business and one day exit, Maybe their dreams are going to be dashed if they hear that their business isn't really sellable. So maybe you could talk about that because you, you've you been doing this for over three decades and you have a lot of experience in this field. You know, Steve, I could answer that question so many different ways. And I'm asked it, it quite often. Uh, you know, our relationships start with clients before their clients. We start to talk with them about their business, the pros and cons of their business, where their business is headed. Uh, how can they make improvements or changes, modifications to their business in advance of a sale? And believe it or not, there's lots that can be done in that year buildup to when you hit go and you start a, a sale process. I would tell you that the overarching thing to think about if you want to sell your business, even though there's lots of other things, you know, clearly you want to put your business in good hands. You want to find a good steward for your business to carry it on. Um, but at the end of the day, people buy businesses so that they can do something with them. Okay. And it it all it almost always boils down to a uh, largely a financial decision. And what I mean by that is, if I buy a business from you, Steve, I'm going to want to take that and get a return on my investment. So, as an owner of that original business, it behooves them to start thinking about what value the next person in is going to be able to create. And as you formulate your business, build your business from talking about your customers, your products, your services, your financial statements, your people on board, your strategy, that all should be uh, designed around um, what the next person or company is going to do with it. Create optionality for them. And the more optionality they have, the more interest there will be and the higher the valuation. And I know that's all very vague. We can get into the nuts and bolts of how you do that. But at the end of the day, um, the majority of the businesses that I've been aware of in over 30 years do sell. Okay. Ultimately, they do sell. A lot of people talk about handing the business down to their kids or to management. You sell to management, you sell to kids, it's still a sale. But the majority of the time, it's a sale to a third party, an independent third party. And so these are people who are thinking about themselves and what they can do with the business. And, and so if you think about it in those terms, I, I would tell you right now, I'll make a bold statement. You will succeed. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's jump into this because as a CFO, I've purchased a lot of companies. So I've been involved in the M&A process. And you know, I did a roll up recently of a financial media stack where we're buying financial media companies, rolling them up. Um, as part of this bigger strategy. And during that process, you know, really I was on the hunt for companies that had certain attributes to match our, our strategy, our strategic direction. 
which related to behavioral analytics and other things like that. But the real thing was, is I was looking at the economics of the business and I was looking at the cash flow that the business would produce. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the difference between profit because some businesses are profitable, but they require a lot of working capital or they require a lot of capital expenditures because maybe they're in a, a CapEx heavy industry, which eats up that cash flow and eats up or eats up that profit, right? And really impacts their cash flow. So maybe yeah. we could start off by talking about um, the economics of a business from like a profit and a cash flow standpoint. And do you see a difference when it comes to valuations in selling a business? Absolutely. That's why manufacturing business uh, is uh, in general trade at lower multiples than service oriented businesses. Manufacturing businesses uh, by and large have a higher capital expenditure for equipment, property plant and equipment. Yeah, very expensive. So you got to really take a look at, you know, a derivation of uh, cash flow, free cash flow. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people talk about EBITDA, but if you've got earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization, but if you have a lot of CapEx, you should look at EBITDA less your annual CapEx spend. Yeah. And so your, your true free cash flow is less. And that is the free cash flow that is used in valuation theory to determine the value. So people will look at that for sure. At the end of the day, you know, it's it's really about understanding your free cash flow and what you're offering offering to a to a buyer. I bet in, in when you were looking at businesses to buy, buy for the the business you just described, you were not only concerned about the cash flow of the business, but you were looking uh, looking at whether or not the cash flow that was being reported was valid. Sure. Yep. That was a big part of your analysis. So you looked at the company and said, what are the policies, procedures, and quality of the financial statements? Did they have a review? Did they have an audit? We would rec recommend at least a review when you're selling your company, because think about it from a buyer's perspective. A buyer's going to look at the business and they're going to say, okay, what am I getting here? They will immediately go out and hire an accounting firm to do what's called a quality of earnings analysis. Yep. And they will dig into the numbers. They'll dig into the policies and procedures. They'll dig into the trends and look for issues. Uh, I would also tell you that in this era of big data, you know, every bit of data is, is not off limits anymore. If it's if it's tracked in any way, shape, or form, it is going to be analyzed. Sure. So you you um, would be sellers, even if it's 20 years from now out there in your audience. They need to think about the quality and quantity of the data that they generate, and the and and I saw on your site, uh, very apropos uh, KPIs, mm -hmm. key performance indicators, uh, so important for uh, characterizing your business and guiding your business towards the future. Yep. So let's talk about the quality of earnings because that's really important, especially when I was looking at companies. And I want to get your your viewpoint on this. I would look at the stickiness of the revenue. Um, stickiness of the revenue, stickiness of, you know, just a lot of different factors. And what I mean by the stickiness is that if let's just take my, my first business that I had, when I was 16 years old, I started a landscape company and it was a contracting business. So we were doing high-end design build. So we'd go out and we'd win these, you know, 200, $300,000 residential projects. We had build them. They had high margins, you know, sometimes 45 to 55% gross margins. And then we would finish the project and then we would hand it over to somebody else who would maintain it. Either the homeowner would maintain it or they would hire a maintenance company to maintain the landscape. We never got into the, the landscape maintenance part of it, 
which that revenue is sticky. If you're signing maintenance contracts and you're performing this work every single month, year over year, you got the stickiness to the revenue. The contracting side of the business wasn't sticky at all. We would go get a contract. We'd do the work. Job was done. So our revenue, like sure, we could report these millions of dollars of revenue, but it's not like it was recurring. Now, if you compare that to a SaaS business where you have, you know, you have people signing up for your software, you have retention rates and everything else, and you can measure it. There's a calculation there to look at the stickiness of the revenue. It's really, really different. So maybe you could talk to me, Dan, a little bit about the difference between sticky revenue, non-sticky revenue. Does it even matter in your world when you're selling a business? And just what are your overall thoughts on it? It's absolutely critical. Pound for pound, a business that can document that their revenue is steady and recurring is, is going to sell for more than a business that's more project-oriented. Yep. I'm in a project-oriented business. When we sell a company, it's oftentimes one and done. Just like your landscaping business or any construction business, any project-oriented business. So kind of the holy grail for a lot of consulting where you work on projects is to have recurring clients. Mm-hmm. In my business... A lot of people want to represent private equity firms because private equity firms have lots of companies to sell over the life cycle of their funds, but it's less less certain. Recurring revenue is a very important concept. And so the multiples on businesses like a SaaS business um, are much higher and they're oftentimes revenue-based because they can, you know, they can look at the revenue, the reliability of the revenue and uh, assign a multiple to that. In the case of the project business, once the project's done, that's not going to recur. So the the company has to refill it. Interestingly, and I hate to say this, but nine times out of 10, my experience has been going back to one of the questions you had before, what is saleable and what isn't? We find in the construction business that most big construction companies would rather do um, a make versus buy. In other words, to say they'd rather just go and get the customer as opposed to buy another construction company that has that customer. Sure. So it 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 is um, it's much more challenging to sell a project oriented business than a business where you can look at historical data, trends in that data, perhaps contracts associated with those customers, and and. Uh, predict with a higher level of certainty that revenues will come once the business is conveyed to you through a purchase. Yeah, absolutely. Because when I was a CFO of a construction company, you know, it's exactly what you refer to. Other businesses, they're going to trade at some multiple of EBITDA, which we could get into, or free cash flow or or revenue or whatever it may be. But as a, a CFO of this construction company, we were looking at other targets and really they're selling for some type of book value, meaning their their equity value with maybe a little little premium on top of it. So maybe it's like 1.1 times their equity because you're really not buying anything. They're really just cashing out and saying, hey, here are the contracts. Maybe there's a, a value as, assigned to those contracts and the anticipated margin you can earn by taking on those projects. But it's not like you're buying this construction company and you're- yeah acquiring a bunch of stuff beyond just their, yeah. you know, their machinery and existing yeah. contracts. What are your thoughts? Well, let on me, that? let me, let me say this though, uh, for any uh, construction companies in your audience that, that there, there are exceptions and those are where you're doing something incredibly special, sure. something special and unique. Maybe you focus on 
um, structures that uh, are involved in clean energy, the solar, the solar business, for instance, or something similar to that, where you have a unique niche, growing niche. And actually, I wouldn't call solar a good niche, but that's another story because it's regulatorily driven. But if you have some kind of specialty and you're doing something unique that, that can't be created, in other words, can't be made, the buyer needs to buy it. Yep. Um, then you've you've got a shot, but short of that, it's a very tough sale. Yeah, I mean yeah, exactly because what I was referring to as a general contracting business, yeah, right. where you don't own any assets, you have a building, and you're just contracting work. But yeah, you're right. If you're a plumbing company, a glazing contractor, a concrete company, whatever it is, a specialty contractor, then yeah, you're going to be looking at a higher valuation most typically. Okay, so let, let's shift gears here, Dan. Let, let's go back to the valuation side because I've worked with some people. And when I'm talking to them about their business, they think, okay, for the last 30 years, I've really grinded it out in my company, I put in so much work, I've sacrificed so much, I've spent all this time away from my family, you know, I know what it took to get to the business to this point, and therefore, you know, my business is worth $50 million is what I'd sell it for. But then you look at their their bottom line and maybe they have like $2 million in EBITDA. And it's like, okay, you're, you're not going to get a 25X multiple on your EBITDA. I know you're emotionally attached to your business, but there's a giant disconnect in your valuation and reality. And I've seen that oftentimes with buyers, especially those who are bootstrapping their businesses from the get-go. What are your thoughts on that and with valuation overall? No, it's such a bummer when someone comes to that point where their hopes and dreams of valuation are just not going to be met. Uh, I've I've seen that too many times to count. And, you know, the sad reality is valuation based on what a seller needs is just not a technique for valuing a business. It really boils down to the fundamentals that you teach and that we see in our businesses. And it, it starts from the very beginning. And, you know, this may sound like a plug for uh, the advisors out there in the world, but, you know, look for free as well as paid advice as you're building your business. Because, you know, you might put in the same amount of time and energy, sweat, equity, sacrifice, um, which is very real, very, very real, and not yield what you could have if you um, were a little more strategic about it year in and year out. Yeah. Uh, I um, recently looked at a business, same story, two gentlemen have built this business over several decades. And... Um, EBITDA was probably around three or four million. That in and of itself is is nice, and it was pretty steady. But they sold into such a specific niche with a specific product that I believe no buyer is going to look at it and say, "What? I can't do anything. I can't take it from three to four million or three to five million in EBITDA. I'm going to pay them a market multiple on their three million, and it's going to be like buying a CD because it's never going to be anything more than it is today." Sure. Now, if if 20 years ago they had said, you know, we gotta we gotta diversify away from this niche, we gotta diversify away from this narrow product category, and that would mean all the difference in the world. This company actually did a lot of the things that you talk about. They built a nice finance function, mm -hmm. they built very good KPIs, they uh, have great policies and procedures, they protected their intellectual property. They diversified their customer base, but it was still this niche. And 
in the end, our advice was kind of sad to deliver, which is we we don't think you're going to get out of this transaction what what you think you what you want and need. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes that that is um, kind of the the kick in the pants to say, okay, let's stay in for another ten years, and let's harness some of this advice and do these uh, this heavy lifting to create a business that is saleable. Uh, under the terms and conditions that really will help those folks move on to the rest of their life, which is, you know, liquidity and, and peace of mind. Yep, absolutely. So let me ask you this, Dan. So really, there there's three main approaches of valuation. You know this obviously, but for the the listeners, the income approach, where you're you're basically taking, you know, you're extrapolating the income, the expected free cash flow. You could build a discounted cash flow model, and then you come up with some type of valuation. The second one is the multiple approach where you're essentially just looking at a multiple of EBITDA or revenue or free cash flow based on similar transactions out there in the marketplace. And then the, the third is an asset-based approach where you look at the value of the assets and you could go from there. A yeah. lot of times they're just combined, the three of those are combined in practice to arrive at some type of valuation. But really valuation is this art because there's a lot of assumptions that go into the model so let me ask you this, somebody who is in the trenches doing investment banking, selling companies, what do you actually use to arrive at a valuation for a company? Like when you're sitting down with a client and you say, hey, we're going to go to market at this valuation. How do you arrive at that number? That's a great question. And it really depends on the company and the sophistication and size of that company. But here's kind of a common sequence. So we'll be asked to propose on a project. and before we get involved, we want to have a meeting of the mind with the prospective client as to what the valuation is likely to be. So we do all this valuation work that you speak of up front. In the beginning, oftentimes, companies do not have forecasts. And so you cannot do the first technique, the income approach, because you don't have forecasted income to discount back to today's dollars. So we take a look at multiples and, and we take a look at uh, publicly traded companies that are similar to the subject company, your company that you want to sell. We look at recent transactions in the industry and see what they sold for. There's data out there on that. It's imperfect data, but uh, we also look at transactions we've done that are similar. And so we're oftentimes proposing on the work, just looking at multiples. I can tell you once a, a bit, we're marketing a business, and by the way, we market businesses in a very confidential manner. This is not like a real estate transaction where you want a lot of eyeballs on it. Mm -hmm. In our situation, you want the right eyeballs on it. People who have the money and the wherewithal and have a history of buying businesses and are under NDA. That's a side point. But what they're going to do, again, back to our, my original comment, they're going to look at it and say, what can we do with it? The only way they can discern what they can do with it is to take a look at the income that they think they're going to generate. Yeah. So while we're talking multiples, they're starting to build an analysis that allows them to do a discounted cash flow. Most businesses in our world, which our world is 20 to 300 million in enterprise value, most businesses in that realm are bought by sophisticated buyers who do some kind of discounted cash flow analysis. And we help them. For one of the first things we do when we get hired, a company doesn't have a forecast, we work with them to build it. Mm -hmm. And that's a painful process if they haven't ever done that before. Mm -hmm. And a lot of owners kind of say, I haven't built a forecast because I really don't know. Or I haven't saw, seen the value in it. 
we hear all kinds of reasons for that, but I can tell you, you need that to convey your business to maximize value. So, buyer- let's talk about that real quick, Dan. So you have the buy side and the sell side, right? So on the sell side, you're working with these clients to sell their business. You're working on the valuation. You project out the next five years, let's say, of revenue and everything else. Of course, there's going to be this motivation to say, hey, look, you know, we think the business is going to go from X in revenue. It's going to grow by X percent and get to here. Costs are going to be minimized. And you, I mean, you want to dress up the financials. It's not like you're making stuff up or lying or doing anything fraudulent. I'm not alluding to that. But you're gonna you're gonna window dress the financials to make it look good. I mean, because you believe in the business, and obviously the seller believes in the business. So there's that side. The buy side, though, they're looking at it and they may be coming from a more conservative approach where they may be looking at growth based on GDP or you know the industry average or whatever it may be. So talk to me from a practical standpoint, when you're projecting out those next five years per se, how do you do that? from an objective standpoint and a reasonableness standpoint, so you can meet in the middle somehow? Yeah, good, great question. There's a lot of ways to do it. And and of course you've got to look at what you're starting with, but in, in a, a typical world for us, it's not one five-year period. It's oftentimes, what are we going to do over the next couple of years? And then the other, you know, the outlying years are, are more of a, a guesswork. Anybody yeah. who does forecasting will tell you that. So what can you build in the in the uh, you know uh, the remainder of the current year, next year, and the year after that, uh, um, to give? Um, to, and, and I would tell you to be cautiously optimistic about your business. And 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 what I mean by that is you take a look at that business from a bottoms up standpoint. You know we can talk about growth rates, we can talk about industry norms, and that's all um, supportive. But it, it, what, what really helps is to take a look at historical relationships with customers, mm-hmm. contracts with current customers, and volume predictions from the, those customers. So you've got the, a revenue bill. And then you look at the cost data associated with those customers and say, what does it cost us to do what we've done for them before? So you've got some basis for building out your margins. Mm-hmm. Then you take a look at your overhead and you say, okay, here's the overhead we did, we used to do this. How does that need to be modified to uh, capture the, the the future of the business? And of course, most businesses have something called operating leverage. So you don't need dollar for dollar overhead as you build your revenue, which is a beautiful thing. Your profits are supposed to expand at a quicker rate than, uh, than your costs. Of course, this only gets you part of the way there because most businesses have something like blue sky, which is, hey, there's no data historically to predict the the, the customer that's going to call us up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But history history shows that we get 20% new business per year. So we're going to layer that in on top and we're going to use standard margins. And so you build this forecast up, bottoms up, that's defendable. And so the discussion with the buyer starts there. You know, the buyer says, I think your business is worth 20 million. I think it's worth 30. Uh, you know, what we like to do is say to that 20 million offer, well, we've got three offers at 30. So if you want to compete in the auction, you got to come up to 30. So that's mm-hmm. that's one kind of argument. But when it really comes down to picking a buyer 
and getting them into, you know, maximizing their price, recognizing it needs to be a win-win, which is our philosophy. You know, everybody's got to kind of walk away feeling a little pained, but you still feel like you got most of what you wanted. It, it boils down to the veracity of that forecast. So it behooves you to think of it from a bottoms up. And if you can't think of it that way right now, and you're thinking of selling in five years, start developing the data so that you can. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That's great. That's great advice. So th- th- let me run this by you and and see what your thoughts are on this. So really the whole genesis of like strategic financial leadership and everything that I do is this. I realized like when I was helping companies and building valuation models and helping them grow and expand and all this stuff, if you just look at the mechanics of a DCF, discounted cash flow model, ultimately you're getting down to free cash flow. And then you're either, you know, you you're using the the perpetuity growth method to to extrapolate it out, or you're using an EBITDA exit multiple method and you're discounting it back and you're doing all this stuff to arrive at an enterprise value. What I realize is that the driver is free cash flow. Okay. And you, know, you say free cash flow or EBITDA, whatever. EBITDA is not free cash flow, but that's just another multiple that I'm talking about here. But really, if we just look at free cash flow, let's just say a business is trading at 10x free cash flow. So every dollar of free cash flow times 10, that equals the enterprise value. What I realize is that when it comes to strategy and finance, because I talk about strategy all the time, and I'll talk about strategy as far as like mission, vision, values, and you know, here's you know, here's a bunch of marketing hoopla that I'm going to throw up on the wall, but like true strategy, like market focus, position, you know, competitive advantages, all that stuff. What I realize is that if you marry strategy and finance together and you can say, Hey, here's a strategy that's going to define where we compete, how we compete, how we're going to win, how we're going to play. And ultimately how that's going to translate to generating higher cash flow, free cash flow, then you could drive firm value. So if you approach it from an accounting standpoint or a finance standpoint, then you just build out these models and you say, yeah, we're going to grow by 20%. Here's our free cash flow projection. It's growing too. And there you go. And it's like, well, how are you going to do that? Oh, I mean, we're just going to like do it. Just work harder and just go out there. And we're the best. There's no strategy behind it. If you approach it from just a strategy standpoint, then it's just a bunch of marketing garbage. Oh, we're the best. We're going to dominate our market. You know, we're going to crush our, our competitors. It's like, okay, well, do you have the cash flow? Do you have the returns? Does your return on invested capital exceed your cost of capital? Like all these financial uh, decisions and discussions. And if there's no tie between the two, then it's just a bunch of garbage. So I want to, you know, introduce that to you. I mean, obviously, you know this, you're in investment banking, but from an investment banking standpoint, what do you think on that whole thesis and that whole idea? You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tickled by what you're saying, because when I come across companies that marry those two concepts, they're the winners. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you're going to be maybe surprised by the way I start to answer your question, but it, it harkens me back to an owner's efforts to build a team and have that team be empowered to talk boss functions and do things. You're talking to you're talking about at least two different functions within a company. You know, you you said finance and strategy. It really ends up being elements of the accounting department, elements of the sales department, and a manufacturer, elements of the operations 
and uh, maybe some other areas, and they all have to collaborate to come up with the the, the vision. Maybe the marketing people do come up with the vision. Yeah. Uh, uh, but at the end of the day, is it supportable by not only the business as it is today, but the resources it's going to have throughout that visionary period? And does it get the return? I thought that that was my maybe the smartest thing about this. You know, does it does it even make sense? Yeah. Sure, I grow my business, but am I getting a return on it? Sure. What what am I actually doing? And and that's where valuation theory comes in. What is a return? You can talk about the free cash flows, but at the end of the day, in valuation theory, you mentioned uh, perpetuity and growth rates and yeah. terminal values. That's where all the value is in a valuation, discounted cash flow evaluation. Most of it's there, not the free cash flows in the interim. Yep. You know, and sorry to get into that detail, but I think that there's a huge leap between financial management and accounting management in the company. Accounting yep. management is basically tracking what happened in the past. Financial management is looking at the business and and making sure it has the financial resources and is a good steward of those financial resources towards a, uh, growth goals. Yep, exactly. So um, the selling of a company is a team sport. So the deal we're closing next week, there's us, there's the lawyers, there's the insurance people, there's the lender, um, and then there's management. And within management, there's the CEO, there's the CFO, and he is a true chief financial officer. He happens to be a CPA too, but he's got the overall picture of the financial dynamics of the company. There's the operations and the salespeople, and we're all working together to first achieve a valuation that's acceptable under under in other terms and conditions, and then making sure doing due diligence that that valuation sticks. Mm-hmm. It's a team effort. And so business owners in your audience should start thinking about the team they build with an idea of coming up with that strategic vision that's supportable by the finance department and every other function in the company sure. to, to succeed. Yep. Because when it comes down to it, if you, if you just break down the formula, you know, it's, you have price premiums. It's like, how do you drive value? How do you drive free cash flow? Price premiums, costs and capital efficiencies and growth. And those are the three main drivers. So if your strategy isn't addressing those, and I'm not saying your strategy is about profit. Profit and cash flow is the result of a good strategy. It's not the strategy. It's not the strategy, folks. Okay. So don't hear me wrong. But a lot of times people don't tie the two things together. So let me let me ask you this. Let me switch gears here, but kind of tie it together. What is a SIM, a confidential information memorandum? What is that exactly? And how important is the SIM in the process of selling a business? And to add into my question, how important is strategy in, in being able to tell the company's strategy in the operating model, explain the whole story, whether it's in the SIM or whether it's it's externally, how important is all that bringing it together when you're selling a business? Well, when you're selling a business, businesses are a little bit more complicated than a lot of other assets you you sell in life. A lot of people think about their home. You know, the four walls of your property and your home are pretty easy for a buyer to understand. There's not much profiling that needs to be go on that to go on about that property before you can get an offer or offers from buyers that are reliable. That's a key point. Are the offers reliable? Now, put that in the context of a business. 
maybe a business has been around 50, 60 years or 20 years, some appreciable amount of time where there's institutional value in that business. It's not, it's not simple and visual. It is a complicated entity. It's an entity that has a financial history, a contractual history, an employment history, a customer history. And all of this needs to be explained to buyers so that the buyers can bid on the business in a way that they're comfortable bidding that a seller can rely on. Hmm. The SIM is also incredible. And in our SIMs are usually 40, 50, uh, 50 to 60 pages, PowerPoint. And it conveys uh, all this great information about a business. It conveys its history, its uh, people, its product services, its facilities, its its growth plans. All of that is tied up into a nice little bow to provide um, an initial, I wanted to say snapshot, but it's much more than a snapshot, you know, comprehensive view of the business so the bidding can start. Yeah. And it has to be done in a confidential setting. So, you know, it's not like people can say, hey, I heard ABC Inc's for sale. What do you know about it? They're not doing their own independent survey. Uh, we're talking about the markets in the SIM and what the market potential is. We're covering everything from soup to nuts, not just at the surface, but a couple layers below the surface. So when you start getting offers, and we get offers, every, every decent investment banking off, uh, firm will get offers based on a review of the SIM. Think about that. I read 60 pages and I'm willing to say as a buyer, I'm prepared to pay $35 million non-binding offer subject to due diligence. The seller then says, okay, uh, investment banker got me 16 initial indications of value. Now, what do I do with it? I narrow it down and I, I allow some of those parties to start doing their own due diligence. But the SIM makes it possible to get to that point. Hmm. That That is only maybe 40, 50% of the way there to a closing. And then it becomes more of a one-on-one -on -one personal interaction with buyer or buyers to get to that final bid and closing. But, um, you know, we spend, you can write a SIM in a weekend. One time when I was a, uh, an associate, young guy, I had to write two in a weekend. I didn't sleep. It's a lot of work, yeah. But, you know, if you want to do it right, it's an interactive process. The banker collects a bunch of data from the company, generates drafts, you massage it, make sure it's accurate, make sure it's cautiously optimistic is what I like to say. You never lie in it. You never lie through any of this. Don't yeah. lie. But but don't don't sell yourself short either. And so you build this sim and, you know, we take, we take, we can take you know a month or two to build a proper sim, and you know you control that time. But once you start sharing it with buyers, and then the process, and that's when the market starts. That's when it starts going. Okay, so let me quick question here, quick question, quick answer. What is the key man discount? Key man discount. Okay, well you know in any business, it's not just the business; it's the people in the business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by the way, we have sold companies before where the key man was absolutely set on retiring day day one. And so you can imagine if that person is key to the business, the business without that person is going to be worth less. Hmm. And, and what, do you, and what I, do you mean by that? Give me an example of that. Well, uh, let's say I had a situation 
15 years ago where um, this gentleman, he and his brother owned a, a company that made certain metal parts. And he had relationships, the, the primary person, the 60, 70% owner, had prime, uh, primary relationships with certain customers. And you don't tell your customers you're selling your company, typically. Sure. And certainly, uh, in, in most cases, you have you stay on post-sale to make sure that the relationships transfer. In this particular instance, he did not, he did not let go of certain key customers. And so those relationships were in jeopardy post-sale because he had already started moving out of his office prior to the closing. He hmm. was done. This man was done. He had other interests in his church and other things that was actually admirable. But I mean, and, and I remember talking with him just as a quick aside. I know you want a quick answer, but he moved out of his office. And I'm like, you know, the buyer's coming by and I don't want him to see your empty office because that means you're done, right? You, you're you yeah. losing leverage here. So so now, um, thankfully, the buyer had somebody in this case that they thought could do a good enough job in keeping those customer relationships together. Otherwise, there would have been a discount for that very important person. And every company's got important people. So oftentimes what we do is we talk to our sellers and say, who are the key people that need to be on the bus post-close? And let's, let's get them involved in the transaction. Let's get them to buy into it. And let's pay them a, a bonus for helping getting the deal done. Got it. So yep. you, you turn a key man situation into a benefit. Yep. Yep. That, that's great. Yeah. So yeah. And, and that's my experience too. It's, you know, you buy a company and this key person, you know, they leave the business and, you know, half the business goes with them. I mean, obviously that's a big problem. So got to be aware of that. There's a, there's a concept of stay bonuses too. And oftentimes either the buyer will fund a pool of money predicated not on the performance of the business in that first or second year, but a person's willingness to stay. Yeah. Sometimes the seller funds that just to make sure that there's a cohesive business, including key people, for the buyer to to grow with post close. Selling companies a very nerve wracking time for people that work in these companies. You know, they're oftentimes not financially independent, so they're like, "Oh my gosh, my employer is changing." Yeah, yeah, so you got to you got to pay attention to that and and be kind um, and, and and careful and thoughtful about how you um, communicate. Um, the opportunity to to your um, to your team. Yeah, for sure, definitely critical. Okay, I have three more questions that I want to get through. Um, the first one is an earnout. Let's talk about earnouts. What is an earnout? Good idea, bad idea. You know, I I've dealt with earnouts in in, in our transactions, um, but I, I want to get your thoughts on um, earnouts in the the real world. Yeah. How you know? How do those normally shake out? Do you recommend avoiding earnouts, or like, is there a strategy behind a a good earnout structure? Just overall thoughts. Gener generally, earnouts are uh, things that we try to avoid, but you, it's very hard to avoid earnout situation in high growth uh, businesses. You got this business; it's high growth, and the buyer comes in and says, "I'm willing to pay you X." And there's also a sliver on top of X, Y, that I will pay you over time based on your the business's ability to achieve the goals that you, you've been selling to me. So you're earning that over time. Um, couple rules of thumb on it. In those situations, hard to avoid to earn out. But as long as you're getting enough at closing, that that's enough for you to do the deal, then why not? Why not accept an earn out situation? 
Um, obviously, you're going to try and negotiate away the earnout, but it's not always possible. Yeah. But it's usually in a growth situation, and it, and it kind of needs to be looked at as like the, the cream, uh, uh, you know, on the cake, not the cake itself. You yeah. get the cake closing. Another thing about earnouts is the average earnout is only about a year and a half. So if someone's talking about a five-year earnout, that should make you nervous as a seller. You know, the longer the time passes between closing and the earnout, the less control. The seller doesn't really have any control because they've sold their business mm-hmm. or they've sold control of their business. Sure. They didn't sell 100%, but they don't control it if they've, they've sold more than 50%. Third thing about an earnout is um, you want it to be based on revenue performance or gross profit performance. You never really want it based on operating profit or EBITDA because there's all this overhead in there that the, the um, you know, you could have a buyer who says, I'm going to build out this huge team. Well, that's going to impact profits in the short term. Sure. It might be great for the long term, but it's not great during the earnout period. So things that you're, you know, there is a common interest among buyer and seller to keep revenue growing and gross profit. Maybe not EBITDA though. Mm-hmm. Focus your earnout triggers on revenue goals or gross profit goals. Structure it that way. I like that. Okay. So let me ask you about seller carry notes. Good idea, bad idea. What are your thoughts on that? I tend to see those in smaller deals. Uh, you tend to, you know, you're probably seeing, we haven't seen it in our firm, but you you see it in tougher times when bank financing is just not available. Um, it's deeply subordinated. It feels like equity, frankly, at the end of the day. And we try to stay away from that, you know, and, and you know, if a buyer's coming, trying to buy your business on your dime, that's not necessarily a good thing. Think about it. They're, they're, they're buying the business, but they're asking you to finance it. Yeah. We try to stay away from that. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Let's talk about broader economics and trends. You know, we're just coming out of this interesting era where interest rates were super low. And so the cost of capital is really cheap. So it kind of fueled this boom with LBOs and with acquisitions because so many people were chasing returns. And when returns were super low, when you're earning a, you know, 1% return on a 10-year treasury, for example, then maybe you're willing to accept a lower return on your capital through some of these deals. So in the M&A space, we saw some deals trading for high valuations, which really had downward pressure on their returns because they're paying so much for the company up front. And now we're entering this era where you know you get to earn 5% on a treasury, right? And it's backed by the US government. So as the cost of capital increases, and no longer is, is capital so cheap for the time being, what is your thought on the future M&A landscape? And for somebody who's looking to sell their business, how does higher borrowing costs, how do they impact their valuation and what they can expect to sell their business for? It's actually a little bit more challenging to that because not only is the borrowing cost higher, but the availability is less. Mm-hmm. Banks are very cautious right now, even at those higher rates. So they're scrutinizing deals. I was at a conference last night here in Southern California, and there were a lot of lenders there, and um, they're being advised by their credit committees to um, be extra cautious in the credits that they put forth to the credit committee. So that that's something to think about. You know, our, ordinarily in my world, people talk about multiples of EBITDA for the debt. Multiples are lower now. So 
what you tend to see uh, is fewer transactions. I would say that the M&A market in general is probably down by a third from its its high in 2019. It's still on like 2016, 2017 levels in terms of activity. So it's happening. But, um, you know, banks are playing less of a role. It's requiring more equity. If you think about in the simplest form, purchases are made with either all equity or a combination of equity and debt. If there's less debt, there has to be more equity to keep the purchase price uh, as high as it is, but purchase prices or multiples are coming down. Yeah. In the manufacturing space, for instance, the average EBITDA multiple is probably around seven, six to seven times, depending upon how attractive the business is. You're also seeing in the market now that, and this is kind of a hard concept, but the more attractive businesses out there are the ones that are selling. The less attractive businesses have to be really careful uh, to discern whether now's the time or wait, wait until a little bit more clear marketplace to play in. It's yeah. a bifurcation. So the multiples might be still very high for those companies with great margins, great growth prospects, great recurring revenue. A lot of the things that we've been talking about here today and buyers are like, I got to have that. Private equity firms have to invest. They're going to go to things that attract them. So there's more attention on those high flyers. The low flyers, less attention. So the implications of, of you know, the state of the debt markets as well as the economy are really you know, causing some challenges in the M&A market right now. We don't know where it's going to go. I think the economy is probably stronger than it feels. There is this kind of negativity sentiment which is a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes because you as a business owner might be like, hey, I'm doing fine, but everyone else seems to be doing poorly based on the sentiment that you hear. And there are all kinds of business surveys out there that show that sentiment is pretty low. Mm -hmm. So you as a business owner might say, I'm going to invest less. I'm going to be more cautious. So that slows your business down. Sure. So, and then the banks look at it and say, you want to sell, you know, we're cautious because your business is slowed, your industry is less clear. So instead of three times EBITDA and senior funding, I'm only going to give you one times or one mm -hmm. and a half times. So it kind of ratchets down activity and ratchets down valuation. So I would tell you that go to your trusted advisors and start talking about if you're thinking of selling, look at your specific business internally as well as how it sits in your industry as well as the broader economic landscape and make some educated decisions based on what that looks like. And what would you say to somebody who um, has this mentality of, look, profits don't matter. It's just, I'm just going to grow the top line at all costs. I'm just going to grow revenue. I'm going to grow really fast. I'm going to exit in five years or three years or two years, whatever it may be. What is your advice to somebody who may be thinking grow at all costs? Profit doesn't matter when it comes to selling a business. Well, think back to our conversation about valuation. We talked about um, the income approach. Ultimately, even in these uh, high-flying tech, Silicon Valley, we have a tech group at our firm. And so you do see some companies that uh, are growing very fast but are not profitable. But the buyer is quick to say, what's your path to profitability? When are you going to be profitable and what are your margins going to be as you after you pierce that threshold? 
And so we can actually get some free cash flow out of this investment. So at the end, at the end of the day, profits matter. And if you cannot explain why this growth in revenue is going to lead to that, then you've got problems. So you can't decouple those. You cannot decouple those. And, um, you know, I would just tell you that if you're building your revenue, focus on recurring revenue, sell into these companies that invest in companies like you're describing, like is these big available markets. So the sky's the limit on the growth. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be an argument for that growth will lead to profitability. But short of that argument, which has to be, you know, pretty solid, you should not should not be just doing that. That's that's not a strategy, I believe. Yeah, I like that advice. Okay, I lied. One more question, if you're up for it, Dan. A lot of people that listen to this podcast, they are younger, they're, they're, they're students, they're coming up in the ranks. A lot of people reach out to me and they they ask for career advice or life advice, or you know, a lot of them are trying to get into iBanking, whatever it may be. So from that perspective, Dan, if somebody wants to get into investment banking, what would you say to them? Are, are there certain skills that they should be building, certain degrees yeah. they should be going after? But when it comes to like getting a job in iBanking, which is harder to do, what would be your advice for somebody who is going down that path? Well, it tends to be the bigger firms that hire the people right out of school because they have training programs. And you want to, training is the name of the game. You know, people get involved in private equity or investment banking in part, not entirely, but in part because they, they want to do better for themselves financially. It is one of those professions where you can make a lot of money, no doubt about it. But early on in your career, it's about prop, it's, it's about training and experience. So as soon as you can, when you're an undergrad, you're getting your business degree, you want those summer internships really matter really matter because you start building a practical foundation, which you can then sell to uh, your first in, um, post-college employer. That's really critical. But you can know you can get that practical experience not necessarily in investment banking. If you go to a consulting firm, consulting firms you, you learn a lot about the strategy and the linkage between finance and and uh, forecasting and strategy that you you teach. Training, like your training, we love it when someone's resume uh, shows that a candidate took the initiative to to get outside training mm -hmm. uh, along the way, because it does validate not only knowledge, but it validates true interest. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, in this marketplace, there's a lot of, um, there is opportunity, but it's unpaid. I mean, if you, if you really want to do the work, um, it's okay to do something unpaid. In fact, I look upon that favorably because, again, it's a candidate that is really putting their energy and effort and really their money where their mouth is. Exactly. Yep. Um, but it's, it's you know, to get to investment banking, um, you can get to it through accounting. You can get through it to lending. Lending is a great um, post-college job because um, there's great training at some of the bigger banks. You can get great training in a credit pool that leads to a lending position. Um, and private equity likes likes lenders, by the way, as well, because lenders actually, um, that's half the equation. Private yeah, equity, exactly. find a company they want to buy, but then they've got to finance it. Yep. They need finance specialists. Mm -hmm. So I would tell you that that's important from a strategy standpoint, getting a job at a consulting firm like McKinsey, Austin Consulting Group 
one of the bigger accounting firms that have built out strategy arms, Accenture. And that also is a good path into private equity because it, 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 those consulting jobs teach you to think strategically, which is the name of the game as well in private equity because they're not they're not advisors to businesses. They're actually making an equity investment. They're mm-hmm. stepping in as equity. So they've got to truly believe in what they're what they're going to be able to do with that business in order to get a return. And that boils down to strategy and yep. finance, as you said. Love it. Great so, advice. Yeah. Now I could talk forever about it because we we interview a lot of people and um our little firm, we've got 20, 20 people. And so we like to find uh, people who have at least two or three years of investment banking experience before we can we can hire. But I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody who wants to talk about it. It doesn't fit that description. No, I love that. I, I think that's great advice. And it does take that work. It does take investment. And it does take putting your money where your mouth is, right? So I, I love that. Uh, it's super helpful. This whole episode has been really helpful. So I Oops. really appreciate you being on the show, Dan. Um and I, I think what you're doing is amazing, amazing work. And just what you provided today in this episode is really going to help a lot of people. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I, as you get further on in your life, you want to kind of, you know, give a little. And, um, you know, thank you for asking my opinion on these things. Um, all I have is my opinion. Yeah. And I tried to build it over a long period of time. So hopefully that's worth something to to, to people. Yeah, I think it is. Absolutely. So for those of you who are listening, if you go to byfiq.com, which is boosting your financial IQ, go there. There's going to be a guest page for Dan. So Dan Shea, look him up there. You could get um, his bio. You'll see his headshot. You'll get links uh, to connect with him and to learn more about what he's doing. I think he's doing amazing work out there. So I highly encourage you to go there, find Dan on the website and um, and connect as as needed. But thank you once again, Dan, for being on the show. And for everybody who's listening, keep on working hard, being ambitious. And in the meantime, take care of yourself. Cheers. Hey, real quick. If you get value out of this podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would leave us a review. Also, if you want to be featured on the show, send me a recording with your name, your age, where you're from, and your question through a voice note or a video using your smartphone. Then email me the file at hello at byfiq.com. BYFIQ stands for boosting your financial IQ. So once again, it's hello at BYFIQ.com. If selected, I'll give you a shout out and answer your question for you and the entire community. One last thing, if you want access to additional resources that will help you fast track your path to financial freedom, visit BYFIQ.com or download our free app in the Apple or Google Play app store today. Thanks again.